You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse. I'm popping into your ears quickly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all around the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend, which tends to focus on Indigenous texts and subversive seminary during the week that focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group, which is currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We also record these episodes in community and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review this podcast in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode. Dr. Bradley Jerzak is the Dean of Theology and Culture at St. Stephen's University in Canada and author of over 20 books, including a novella co-written with Paul Young, Yes, the Shack Guy, titled Pastor, The Pastor, A Crisis. Um, Brad, as well as those things, um, you also love well, and I respect that more than maybe anything else. And you've loved me well, and um, your uh, loving witness, uh, both as a a pastor and a theologian has meant that uh, so many people have found healing in, well, to steal titles from your books in uh, a more Christ-like God. And uh, we're, we're deeply thankful for that and thankful that you've set time aside to go on this journey with us. So thanks for being here. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Now, Brad, I'm, you know, one of the things that we really care about, we love to hear and learn about people's story and journey. And so uh, I'm really curious about when and how do you first remember the gospel and atonement being explained? So I'm just thinking about those early memories of the gospel and atonement and, and how you remember that at the earliest stages. Yeah, I have very, very early memories. I, I loved Jesus from the time my mother taught me his name on her knee. Mm-hmm. That's never changed. I've been angry at him, but... <laughs> always loved them. Um, and then, you know, I, I would go to bed at night and listen to some radio preachers at night. Um, this is before they got to Armageddon-y. Um, and so they would have explained the gospel in terms of um, that Jesus died uh, and that his death was for us somehow. And that in his death, he forgave us. And that I, I need to really um, respond to that. So as best I can remember, the, a kind of mechanism or atonement theory wasn't heavily part of that. Um, but, you know, pretty quickly, I would have, I would have got the idea that Jesus was being punished for my sins instead of me. And, and so I don't know how old I would have been, but that was not an atonement theory to us. That was the gospel. Hmm. And we were unaware of other ways of hearing the gospel. And I remember being, let's say, eight years old and sitting in communion services as, as they told us, let a man examine yourself 
so that you don't eat and drink unworthily and and, and uh, sort of take damnation on yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and um, so what that looked like, I think, was probably an an exercise in lowering our guard from the accuser and just letting him pummel us for a little bit. Um, and and wow. exercising self loathing as a as a way of preparation. And so that was weird. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, as I grew older, uh, the classic evangelical penal substitution came into clearer focus through Billy Graham preaching. Um, and then ultimately, when I got to Bible college, you know, that was the doctrinal statement of salvation in the church. And so I was pretty hardcore. I mean, by the time I got to my master's degree, I was, I had put on five point Calvinism and, <laughs> and I was a true believer in Kel- John Calvin's version of penal substitution, which was that the wrath of God against sin was poured out on his son. And I actually did my MA, def- my thesis, my MA thesis was a 180 page defense of penal substitutionary atonement. I know my wow. stuff on this man. <laughs> and I've lived it from the inside and preached it. And I even remember as a young pastor preaching, hmm. um, God cannot just forgive sin. He must punish it. Hmm. He can wow. punish it in you forever in hell, or he can punish it in his eternal son on the cross. You pick. Hmm. Wow. I'll stop there. That was my, that was the development of my atonement theology up to the age of 24. So Brad, it it sounds like it's fair to say that the vision um, of God that you were handed in these atonement theologies was not nonviolent and restorative. It was uh, violent and retributive. Would you say that's also true for the vision of discipleship that accompanied those theologies? Um, you know, I wouldn't have thought about it in those terms at the time, because what we would have, what we would have been experiencing in our hearts was this tremendous relief that the punishment that that God required had been taken care of at the cross. It had, in a sense, he, he had his pound of flesh. And so, so the kind of, in my, in my life of discipleship, it didn't, it, it, it should not have been directly retributive, but you do end up reading between the lines, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're bad and then something bad happens, is this about God punishing me? But we would have always, we, we, I, I don't want to straw man this thing. So I would have said, no, he, he really does love us. So it was weird. It wasn't very consistent. It was kind of like, uh, you can have your cake and eat it too, but but in the big picture, I do see I do see a trickle down effect from penal substitution retribution into the penal system, uh, that 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 our our penal system is a reflection of our theology and vice versa a little bit. Yeah. So to the degree that that retribution is is a projection, it's it's also it also has a maybe less so in discipleship, but more so in my affirmation of retributive justice in this world. It would have been mm. eye for an eye and so on. Yeah, that's good. That's good. In fact, we were just prior to everyone getting on, Jared and I were talking about the connection between right the retributive system 
and atomic theologies and how do we think through those things. So I'm listening to your story and your journey and the way that you've kind of, I mean, as you, in your own words, right, were the communicator for that kind of retributive justice of God, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm curious that now in the presence, um, if I were to ask you, you know, someone comes up to you and says, how does Jesus save? How would you answer that question now? Yeah. Um, just to back up one step, the turning point for me was actually in a contemplative prayer encounter where I heard mm -hmm. a voice inside that I recognized from years of listening, intruding on my thoughts and saying, stop telling people that I was punishing my son. That's not wow. what was happening. Come on. Well, you don't just change your theology from hearing a voice, but you will go on a journey from there. Mm -hmm. um, where that journey has led me today is would, I believe I'm fairly, uh, uh, I, I'm fairly faithful and submissive to particular Eastern Orthodox and patristic history. So I even like how you asked the question, what did you say? How does Jesus save? Yeah. Um, you've already avoided a major error by asking it that way, because when we talk atonement theology, we usually ask, how does the cross save? And then right. that takes mm -hmm. us into a mechanism and a transaction. Yeah. You've avoided yeah. that I, um, admirably. So that's the right question. How does Jesus save? Um, uh, I want, I do connect it with the cross, but the cross means something different to me now, right? The cross used to be uh, a, a synecdoche or, or like a symbol for the mechanism of penal substitutionary atonement. Now I see it as a symbol of love. This is how we know what love is. And we look at the cross. Well, what do we see on the cross? Um, we see uh, how Jesus saves. And, and so one way to talk about that is I would say the cross, i.e. Jesus response to our violence and, and our addiction to retribution. Jesus' response is uh, a, a definitive revelation and a decisive victory. And then this, I'm just distilling the early church fathers here, but uh, th the cross gives us a definitive revelation of God as self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love, and a decisive victory over what I used to say would be Satan, sin, and death. But now, like, I've still got a little bit of Baptist in me. So now I say darkness, dread, and death, three Ds. <laughs> um, and so, so the first part is a revelation of who God is. And that revelation itself it, um, saves me from a whole lot. It saves me from toxic images of God, toxic toxic images of humanity, toxic images of faith. So there's a, there, there's a, a saving work in, in the revelation that God is love and that he has forgiven us and that he has reconciled all men, all women, all people to himself. That revelation is, is, is the power of the gospel at one level, but also it was, it was not just show, it was... <laughs> It, or t show and tell, he, he, it actually accomplished something. And so when I say um, he conquered Satan, sin, and death, um, uh, we see in the Gospel of John, he says, already at the cross, Satan, whatever that is, the prince of this world, the, the principle of evil, the, the, 
darkness of scapegoating and accusation and oppression that is driven out there in some way. Um, uh, sin is, is solved there because he freely forgives in response to our violence. Father, forgive them. Okay. <laughs> forgive who? Pilate. Caiaphas. Um, the Sanhedrin. Forgive Judas. Forgive Jared. Forgive Amber. Forgive. And so he universalizes and totalizes what he's already been doing the whole time. He's been freely forgiving. That's the point of Hosea, that he's free to forgive prior even to repentance. Yeah. And that the news of this forgiveness may generate repentance because <laughs> it's such good news that we may, that the kindness of God leads to repentance. So, so he deals with sin there, not, but not through payment of a debt via violence, but through a free act of radical forgiveness by the quintessential victim himself and then of death. So this is where the fathers are really important. Ultimately, the problem is not sin. Ultimately, we need to be saved from death itself. And so the way Athanasius imagines it is it's like he's look, God, God looks upon the human race, this, his precious children, and he sees them plummeting towards non-being. And the question is, what is God to do? He sees, he sees us dying and he, and he need, he wants to rescue us from death. So, so this is a bit of a, this is a bit of a theory. It's not a theory that he was victorious. That's a fact. That's a truth. That's the gospel. But the, mm. the idea, the, the atonement theory in Athanasius is he must rescue us from death by entering death, but he cannot enter death because he's God. So he assumes humanity so that he can die so that he can enter death and chase us even to the very bottom of the abyss. And so Christ assumes humanity so that he can die so that he can go down into death rescue us from there but wait a minute it's not just his humanity that goes into that it's the person and that means god is there but wait god is in death god can't die what's going to happen boom death dies he blows up death from the inside just like in um men in black when the big bug eats tommy lee jones and and thinks it's so victorious over him well this is how chrysostom pictures it in his paschal homily it's like uh hell swallows him up and then but it's it thought it swallowed a man but it swallowed god you know and and then it, it and and in swallowing god himself in the person of jesus christ uh death is destroyed forever so that narrative what does that narrative do? Hebrews 2 says that narrative frees us from death and the fear of death through which Satan held us in bondage all of our lives. Hostage. Mm -hmm. Everything that whatever Satan represents has lost the leverage of death anxiety. And so now even Athanasius, he would not say we know Jesus is alive because the tomb is empty. He'd say we know Jesus is alive because we're not afraid of death anymore. Mm. Well, it might be good if we evangelize Christians about that now, because we're, yeah. we're terrified of it again. So that that's a long answer. How does Jesus save? Definitive revelation of love, decisive victory over darkness, dread, and death. Mm. Brad, part of my um, Lenten practice has been reading um, on the incarnation again. And uh, I, I finished just because I couldn't put it down yesterday while Noah was uh, sleeping. And I'm, I'm struck by um, the, 
the apologetic for it is martyrdom, people undergoing um, a, a non-violent death in the face of violence. And, and this is kind of the explanation um, for, um, I, I love what you said there, rather than uh, resurrection, um, it, it's resurrection practice rather than the facts of an empty tomb or something, or um, that, that's a very different kind of imaginative realm to how things are, are usually structured for people. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how to answer it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. That's, yes, it is. That's correct. <laughs> Athanasius is good. <laughs> well, uh, maybe, maybe to get a little bit behind um, your answer and uh, look at some of the things that are going on. Um, I heard in, in your initial response, um, talk of um, uh, an encounter uh, with God in contemplative prayer. So um, part of how Brad knows is, is this experience, but I also heard you um, reference uh, the, the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Um, and uh, partly that's because we've stacked the deck and we asked the question that way, but I also know that that is um, uh, how you operate. Uh, but I then heard you talk about um, tradition um, uh, and then the scriptures. How, how would you describe your sources or um, your approach to um, uh, articulating uh, a more Christ-like atonement or to use other phrases, uh, Zerzhakian phrases, um, uh, unwrathing God? Uh, what, um, how would you describe uh, your ways of working, your ways of knowing? Um, would you show us what's under the hood a little? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the ways I describe this is a three-legged stool of authority. And, and so the three legs of the stool uh, would be uh, uh, the scriptures, the spirit, and the body of Christ. Mm. And, and that takes some unpacking because uh, for me, the, the word is not simply the scriptures in the sense of go proof texting and cherry pick verses that affirm what you already believe, but it is particularly the scriptures as read through Christ the Emmaus way. That's so right. yeah. if you just start in Joshua, you can become Oliver Cromwell and commit genocide. But if you start with John mm. 10, 10, and you know that God is not a death dealer, then, then, then Jesus becomes your sponsor into the rest of the scriptures, which then in turn mm. point back to him. So um, when I heard that voice, we'll come back to the voice in a minute. Uh, my first instinct, I'm a Bible guy. Um, uh, to a fault in the sense that, that it, you know, my great stumbling block in Bible college and seminary years was, was a, a prideful knowledge of the Bible that w when I was very distant from the person of Jesus, but at least I knew my Bible and, and, I, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and I, I was very proud that, you know, I, I would have stuff written in the margins of every single page in my Bible and, I, and, and layers of duct tape just to show, you know, the chicks how cool I was, right? Because they were, <laughs> you know, it was ridiculous and, and egoistic and, and patriarchal and all like any bad name you can use for it. But, 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 I, did, but I did love the scriptures and I still do. And so... I believe that they testify of Jesus Christ. And so that's when I heard the voice saying, stop, stop reading the Bible this way. Immediately, I could, 
it was weird. My eyes just opened. So for example, I would have, I defended in my master's thesis, I defended penal substitution from the Bible using Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Yeah. Now, based in one sentence, I heard my head, I go to Isaiah 53 and what does it say? You, you people rejected him. People despised him. People scourged him. It was people's sin who did this. And you're going to think God did it. Yeah. <laughs> You'll, you will consider him stricken by God, but he wasn't, right? Um, yeah. And then, or Psalm 22, oh, see, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the father forsook him and poor, we'll keep reading. Verse 24, he has not turned his face from me, Yeah. period, right? So scripture, second, um, uh, and this would be in the order probably uh, that I did it. Uh, I went back to the scriptures and then the, the spirit. So the Bible doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say the Bible will lead you into all truth. Jesus says the spirit will lead you into all truth. And what will that look like? Well, the spirit will be your teacher, your guide, your counselor. Uh, he will be my witness. He will be. And so, well, so I, um, during my twenties, I, and thirties, I began to really cultivate a more, a practice of charismatic listening that eventually evolved into contemplative listening. Mm. And it, and it is in the context of listening prayer that I, which I trained a lot of folks in, in doing listening kind of contemplative listening. It is in that context that I heard the spirit. And so the spirit and the, and the scriptures now uh, interdependent witnesses. And then third, the church. And so by church, I mean, I would include the tradition. What are, what is it that the great saints of history have taught us? The ones, the ones where I look at them, I'm like, the fruit of their lives tells me I need to listen to them. How did they see the cross? Um, the church includes, includes uh, friends of mine from across the body of Christ, Catholic, Orthodox, Evangelical, Charismatic, Anabaptist, even Australian, you know, and that we, um, that, that, that those who profess Christ as Lord and live as those whose whose lives confirm that lordship, I'm re I really pay attention to them. So immediately mm. when I heard this voice, I went to the scriptures, but then I also started sending emails all over the world. Who are the theologians that have come to trust, including J. Danny Weaver? And, mm -hmm. and would you show me alternatives, right, to how I was seeing this? So now we've got the scriptures, the spirit, and, and, and the body of Christ, which includes the tradition. Um, and that those three interdependent witnesses um, uh, become my, my sort of my authority. Uh, I want to just say, I've also seen that three-legged stool fail for people <laughs> and, and what they're needing to upgrade their discernment by saying, we need another three-legged stool called Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Um, <laughs> the words of Jesus, his teachings, the life of Jesus and the passion of Jesus. And, and then I, so what I do with that is I am constantly um, mindful of how does the Jesus in my heart, who I know, align with the Jesus in the gospels that I read. Mm -hmm. And I need to com com constantly compare that so that the Jesus in my heart can critique my hermeneutic of scripture and that the, the Jesus of the scriptures can critique my projections of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, that's good. 
So that would be a long answer to your straightforward question. That's good. That's good. Yeah, I always love hearing um, people talk about, yeah, the um, just where we're getting from. And I do appreciate you engaging even like, you know, ancient Christian, ancient Christianity and just having that broad, both global and historic emphasis, I think that's really important. So I'm curious though, staying on the theme of scripture, but maybe inverting the conversation a little bit, I'm really curious about what passages um, have given you or do give you, whether it be either or, the most grief when articulating a more nonviolent atonement. Um, are there particular passages either now or in the past that you've seen that have um, given you and maybe even others trouble as it relates to thinking about a nonviolent atonement? Yeah, um, so yeah, I, I, I want to be haughty a little bit and just say, no, none of them give me grief. I just read them right now. Um, but really, Brad, I, I already told Drew that that was your answer to that question. None of them. But uh, we, we ask, knowing that um, uh, you have become a, a refuge for so many people um, who long for a Christianity that is more Jesus y. Yeah. And um, you hear these passages raised with you. Um, all the time. So maybe that is true, maybe yeah. that's a good way to, to frame it for you. Sure. I, so I'll share a couple specific texts and, and how I work with them, but also I'll start with a, a few words. So the word atonement is a slippery English word. Mm -hmm. when, it was when, the, when the English word was first coined, it literally did mean atonement. In other words, mm -hmm. right. the essential definition of atonement used to be reconciliation. Right. Over time, it experienced severe slippage into appeasement. Mm. And I would say our gospel is reconciliation, but wrath appeasement is pagan. Right. Actually, I'm quoting Miroslav Volf on that. You know, he was telling me like, okay, there are some now very nuanced versions of so-called penal substitution that you might get in, like, let's say, Fleming Rutledge or in N.T. Wright or in the Tübingen mm. School. They're, and the, the way they talk about it is fine. I'm like, yeah, okay, but where does it cross the line? Because it crosses the line at wrath appeasement. That is yeah. paganizing scripture. And, and those folks would agree. Um, I want to say that when I paint penal substitution as wrath appeasement, I, uh, they, I've been critiqued for making a caricature. And I'm like, no, I'm not. That's the dominant way it's preached. The nuanced way that, that writer or Rutledge uh, or Bart or some of these folks would give, that is not the majority view. That's not what you hear in a radio or in a pulpit in America on Sunday. That's, mm. that's comparatively elite in my opinion at least in terms of just the sheer volume of how it's preached so i i like how some of those i love Flem you got to get those their books um uh, mm. uh right the day the revolution began and rutledge mm -hmm. the crucifixion just these are epic works but but they're not kelvin they're not kelvin <laughs> um they're so okay so so that atonement is one word that's problematic. So in the Eastern Orthodox Church, some of our priests would even say that atonement itself 
is a false teaching. But but what they mean is appeasement, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Right. They don't. Of course, the cross the, the the cross is central to our salvation. They would never deny that. They just they're just struggling um, <laughs> with this English term. And then so in the in the Greek, the big word the word problem is hilasterion. Mm-hmm. And there's another right. word group called Helasmus, and it's the same problem. So Hilasterion, um, let's let's go back to the days of C.S. Lewis and slightly before. Some English Bibles were translating that word propitiation. Right. Well, um, that was a that was a penal substitutionary translation. Right. And I was taught this, and I taught this, that if you want to understand penal substitution, you think about the wrath of a volcano god and throwing a virgin into the volcano, which then appeases the wrath of the volcano god. That's propitiation. I'm like, really? That's what we're saying our gospel is. No wonder Wright would say it's paganizing the gospel. It is. It absolutely is. Like, by admission, even using pagan religions that sacrifice virgins in volcanoes to explain the cross that's like blasphemous well lewis and farrar and and these folks in 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 that era they saw the problem with this and and so they would translate it expiation instead of propitiation and expiation was sort of carries the idea of removal so whatever christ does removes the sin cleanses the sin, sends the sin away. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think that's a, that, that's a, a far better word for it. Later you get um, the NIV. They, they realize that, okay, these Bibles are having a debate in the Bible through the translators. Um, mm-hmm. Let's go to more neutral ground. So then, so then the NIV goes to, well, let's translate it atoning sacrifice. But again, yeah. because of the slippage in atonement language, People are reading appeasing sacrifice made to God so that he can forgive us. It's still penal substitution. It's still transactional. Whereas you can read the language of sacrifice as self-giving, right? When a woman delivers a child, that is sacrificial love. Mm. You you know, my wife delivered three 11-pound babies. (laughs) <laughs> I know sacrificial love when I see it. Well, no one's being punished there except maybe her own body, but it's like this, this self-giving or, or a first responder rushing into a burning building or, you know, like potentially losing his own life for the sake of another. It's not about punishment or, or anything like that. So, okay, sacrificial, atoning sacrifice. And then I started just thinking, you know, is Hilasterion in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament? Yeah. It is many times. Well, how do they, when they use the word Hilasterion, what are they, what's, what are they translating there? And I looked it up and you know what it is? It's mercy seat. So then Christ, the cross becomes a picture of the mercy seat. And there's the cherubim on each side of him, the two thieves. Mm. wow and the the mercy seat is the place of reconciliation and there isn't a mechanism unless it's Mm -hmm. this we put him on a cross and he forgave us 
and that's what reconciled us to him. <laughs> like, but how does it? No, there's no how. He fr he freely responds to our vengeance with forgiveness, hmm. and so the so so he is the mercy seat. For so instead of how, you're saying who, Brad? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Let's go with yeah. that. Tweet that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and to take it out of. Um, uh, to dig in into one particular passage, like um, 1 John 4 is, uh, verse 10 is an example of where the NIV uses the term atoning. Uh, yeah, that's, is the that's hilarious word. there. Yep. Um, so it reads, this is love. So we're about to get um, the beloved disciple's definition of what love is. Um, not this is the... love that the father threw his son into a volcano. No, but... Now, what is it? <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Yeah. So talk us through um, the, the two different... Re how, how would have um, Brad of uh, his masters defending um, John Calvin have read that verse versus um, uh, Brad after hearing um, the voice of God say, stop telling people I'm punishing my son. Yeah. So, um, and again, I'm, I'm going to really try hard not to caricature or straw man. I would have said, this is love. That God, the father and God, the son conspired to solve the sin problem by exacting the punishment required by justice in the body of Jesus Christ as the father poured out his wrath for all sin for all time on his son and abandoned him um, if you believe this you will be saved hmm. now I would say God sent his son as a gift of love into this world and we murdered him. We murdered love. But God knew this would happen. And he inverts that very murder into the occasion where he forgives all men for all sin, for all time. Women too. <laughs> but but I, didn't see, I didn't see women with spears there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I see women weeping. So, um, uh, so... So it's, it's, it's the sending of a who, and that who is love, and it's a demonstration of love in the face of our violence. Yeah. I do want to mention a couple other passages that are really important before we lose it. Um, so yeah. I think I think I had already mentioned Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Those are the key ones. Um, and there's a, so with Psalm 22, again, we read it as if, um, Father, uh, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as an ontology that God actually had forsaken his son? And so some of the great reformed preachers would say, he wasn't mistaken, was he? <laughs> if Jesus says, I'm forsaken, then he's right. He was forsaken. And, and, uh, but, but what happens in the, in the passage, it's like the next verse, he says, I'm a worm and not a man. It was, he mistaken about you know is we take that literally too and so what happens in psalm 22 you get to verse 22 to 24 
And the psalmist prophetically reframes the cry of dereliction. That's what we call that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He reframes it. and He says, he has heard my cry for help. Oh, so the cry of dereliction was a cry for help. And that the father heard that cry for help and answered it. And then he just so explicitly says, and he has not despised the afflicted one. He has not turned his face away, right? So that completely obliterates this whole narrative we created that frankly was heretical because it split the Trinity. It was either tritheism, splitting father and son, or worse, it was making the son less than God because yeah. we would say God can't look on sin. It's like, what are you, are you telling me Jesus ceased to be God at any moment? That's Arianism. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was one. Uh, and I just found like reading the whole chapter really helped. <laughs> the other is that in Isaiah 53, I had mentioned that in the earlier part of the chapter, he's saying that this idea that he was stricken by God, that, 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 was, that, that was our mistake. It was we who did this. But later in the chapter, our modern translations that are rooted in the Masoretic text of Hebrew, which comes way after the New Testament, um, uh, it, it uses this terrible phrase. It pleased the Lord to crush him. I'm, I'm like, what do you do with that verse? So again, I race back to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that predates the New, the New Testament. So it's, a, it's an ancient it's an ancient um, translation. How would rabbis translate that verse from Hebrew to Greek? You know what? In, in, in the Septuagint, it doesn't say it pleased the Lord to crush him. It says it pleased the Lord to heal him. What? Oh. <laughs> like, that's like the opposite. <laughs> and I don't know what happened, but I know this. If I have to choose between the two translations, I will, I will choose using John 3.16. It's that mm-hmm. it, God so loved the world he gave his son. You know, I'm, I'm going to read, I'm going to make my interpretive decisions about Isaiah through the Jesus story. Mm-hmm. So those, those are two pretty major ones. I think maybe just one other that's important is sometimes um, I, you, will, you will hear people quote, um, well, don't you know that it says in Hebrews, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. I'm like, <laughs> isn't that amazing? You completely skipped the first phrase in the verse. It's like, what? Yeah. Under the law. Yeah. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And if you keep reading the chapter, by the way, it didn't work. <laughs> so, um, so I just think the, the whole thing is, is about the inefficacy of, of blood sacrifice. And then Jesus comes along and he says, my, my self-giving to you in the midst of your violence, it, actually that has efficacy. The other thing didn't work. It just didn't work. And, um, and anyway, people could be forgiven in the Old Testament even after they were in exile and there was no sacrificial system, you know? <laughs> so, so what's that all about? So I, I don't know. We just seem yeah, to that's have... that's really helpful. Um, that, so that's some of the key texts that I would say, I, they don't give me grief, but they, other than to say I've had to write about a thousand emails responding to that one. <laughs> Probably there's now blogs that I've done that would cover it or it's in a more Christ-like God where I address it. Yeah. 
Brad, if um, if Inverse receives any pushback, it's that we have an agenda, like um, even in the name, to to turn everything upside down. Um, for us, that directly comes out of um, what we see the first person of the Holy Trinity's will to be in the second, and we pray to do it in the power of the third. Um, when you consider um, the, the ongoing conversations, and I'm aware even as we're recording this, that um, uh, that nation just south of where you live, Brad, has had a, another um, white supremacist um, uh, terrorist attack um, at this time on Asian Americans. Um, uh, and the conversation has gone in some really strange ways that our friend Father Ken was highlighting just before you got on. Um, but these questions of um, misogyny and white supremacy, of domination and colonisation, um, how, how do you, or rather, where would you start um, to draw the dots for people when so often people's um, whole frame of what the gospel is, is so personal that um, it never touches these larger um, pools that we swim in all the time. Um, as if they were could be separated from the personal. One of the things I deeply appreciate about you, Brad, is that you're so pastoral in the way that you write, in the way that you um, do th theology. Um, I don't hear you at all saying that this isn't personal, but would you help make the connection between these um, the structural issues and how our souls are formed um, in these larger societies and structures that we swim in? Yeah. I just think it's so indivisible. You know, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, especially, and then I, I'm going through the trauma of reading Tolstoy on the Sermon on the Mount. He is mm -hmm. so, he is brutal. Yep. Um, it is just indivisible. And so uh, I want to draw a distinction between personal and private. Mm. I have a, my, I have a, a personal faith that and a public faith go together. Yeah. Private faith um, is not what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount, except when you go into your closet to pray or when you shave during fasting. <laughs> um, mm. But, but, but the, the, the personal and the public expression of our faith is one. And, um, it's amazing. Like if, so if you look in the, in the Beatitudes specifically, which I try to pray every day as my furnace for discernment, I don't believe you can get a false prophetic word through the first three Beatitudes. It's a furnace that fries up every false, every false word. So um, in the Beatitudes, you get to the fourth Beatitude and it says, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, well, in English, we usually translate that righteousness. In Hebrew, in Greek, in Czech, in Thai, in Chinese, righteousness and justice are the same word. Yeah. It's this profound schism in English that allows me to embrace personal righteousness with no hunger for public justice. That's, that's, 
I would, I would think that must be heresy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so that righteousness and justice, personal and public are indivisible. And, um, you know, Tolstoy really pushes it. He even starts saying stuff like, you know what, um, uh, the key to the Sermon on the Mount is understanding these three words, resist not evil. And you're like, wait a minute, we do need to resist evil. We need to resist systemic injustice. We do need to. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about employing tribunals to do so, whose verdicts are capital punishment. And, uh, and so then he starts using the Sermon on the Mount to attack not just unjust courts, but courts themselves. I'm like, you can't do that. We need courts. We need. And, but then Tolstoy is like, well, hang on a second. What does Jesus say? You have read eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That was talking about the Jews' public justice, this, their, social, their social system for, uh, and he's like, but I say to you, judge not. So he's even saying, you should never be on a jury. You should never do this stuff. Well, I think I'm just going to let him push me on that for a little bit before I squirm out of it. Because what he's up to is he's saying, you have separated personal righteousness from public justice. Not so mm. fast, young man, you know? <laughs> and so um, I want to think about that more, but I, I think the spirit of what he's saying is exactly right. And, and um, the dark, dark side of this is where um, we don't, we didn't connect the dots between a theology of retributive justice in the atonement with a practice of retributive justice that knows nothing of restorative justice in our systems. So once retributive justice gets in the systems, you just look at, at the United States um, with, in terms of privatized penal systems yeah that's right um and the market the market is criminal so you you push up you know all of this stuff is is interconnected in a pretty hideous way i i think and and it explains to me like i i just want to say this if you believe in penal substitution you're going to end up seeing the redemptive the redemptive side of torture yeah that's and right. so what 60% of white evangelicals in America are pro-torture Yeah, above, above every other demographic. Well, yeah. I don't mean to slam my evangelical American friends. What I want to say, though, is that's not an accident. The fact that that group is most in favor of retributive violence of prisoners is connected to their atonement theory. Um, or, or give me some other reason, <laughs> mm. right. but that's the dots I connect. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was saying to Jared that, um, Dominic Gilliard, he's done a little, some of that history connecting it directly to punitive justice in the system and the atonement theology. So he's wrestling with some of those questions as well. So there's a lot of folks, um, connecting those dots. And I think that they're, there's no other way to describe why the United States is so committed to a punitive system other than I think it's punitive theology and it's understanding its views of God that are so retributive. 
But um, I, I'm really interested, you know, one of our concerns is both um, in some ways pastoral for our overall listeners, but also um, for the subversive seminary community as well. And so I'm curious um, if I were to ask you, like, where would you send someone who is desiring to break from theologies that, you know, accommodate, again, domination and supremacy and violence and that are retributive, like on a pastoral level, where, where would you begin to send them as the beginning of that journey? Well, to you, obviously. <laughs> um, the other thing we do, and, and you know, Jared is a, is a guest lecturer with, um, with the in IRPJ.org, Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice. And that is the peace studies arm of St. Stephen's University, where I'm the Dean of Theology and Culture. But I feel like we're just really only starting to learn ourselves. So I would trust your referrals more than mine right now, frankly. Hmm. Brad, we love you. Um, we're, we're so thankful for your work and witness um, and the integrity of, uh, um, and, and for somebody who talked about um, pride, uh, you, you're, you're gen, genuinely one of the most humble, approachable, um, brilliant people I know. Um, even the way that you choose to communicate um, uh, the, the way you do, I, I deeply appreciate. So it, it has been a joy having you as our, our first guest um, framing uh, nonviolent atonement theologies for, for people to explore. Thanks for your kind words, Jared. You know, I come by my humility, honesty, honestly, in this sense. Um, I'm keenly aware of the harm I've done. And I have no right to speak whatsoever. I would cancel myself if I could, but I have received mercy and I can live with myself by paying it forward. Mm. That's beautiful, Brad. And painful, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Many beautiful things are. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text and still turn the world upside down. Why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.